Thank you, wonderful wife. Uh, well, we uh, are in the Advent season, and uh, I was talking to Del Reynolds, and he was informing me, do you know when Advent begins? And I had to admit as a pastor, December? Like, you know, he said, no, it's after Peter's birthday, which is December 1st. So you learn something new every day. But uh, it's first Sunday after Peter's birthday. But anyways, uh, we are in the Advent season, and that's what it is for us is a season of expectation and and hope, and waiting, and longing, and uh, the coming of Jesus, of course, is, is a time that uh, the Jews for thousands of years were looking forward to, and uh, of course, we're on the other side of that. Jesus has come into the world, and yet at the same time, we live in this period of time where we're waiting for Christ to come again, and in the midst of that, we recognize, okay, just like the Jews were waiting all those years ago, we are waiting again. And in a similar posture, in a similar kind of way, like thinking, uh, when when are you going to come back? Because things seem to be ready and ripe, and uh, gosh, it sure would be nice if you would show up on the scene. And sometimes you watch the 6 o'clock news and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, Can we just find a, a little peace and harmony in the world? Can we just experience a little resolution to this experiment, this project called creation? Uh, it would be really, really nice, Scott, for you to come and set some things right. Um, but, you know, the story of Christmas, when you look back at that story, it really is an unbelievable story. And so many people, uh, right around this time, I think they, they look at the Christmas story and they think, well, that's, that's kind of a fairy tale. You know, that's a, that's a story that we tell little kids, but not really something that, a, that an adult who has a fully developed mind and, you know, can think rationally would ever believe. Uh, And so we look at the details of the Christmas story, it's just altogether unbelievable. It really is. And it's hard to to believe a story like Christmas, but really when you you zoom out and when you kind of look at the the entire story from beginning to end and zooming out over thousands of years, and you recognize that it's really a remarkable story. You know, yes, unbelievable in the details of it, but it's a remarkable story over the course of time and and over the great span of time in which it unfolds. There's so many impossible things that have happened along the way and things that we know have happened because, well, they've already happened. You know, we can look back and we can see what was predicted and we can see what was promised and we can see how it has been fulfilled. And the the Christmas story, as, as we know it, you know, it doesn't begin with a couple that's thinking to themselves, okay, how did we get pregnant? Like, how did this really happen? It really begins a couple of thousand years before that with a couple who was thinking to themselves, we're never going to get pregnant. We we can never have a child. And they were in a hopeless situation. And again, it is a couple thousand years ago when God speaks to a man named Abram. And God speaks to him and he promises him something so great and so amazing that he cannot even wrap his mind around it. He can't even fathom how God is going to meet this promise. But it's in Genesis chapter 12, and that's where we're going to start uh, the message this morning in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. And this is what we call the call of Abram. This is really the beginning of God's story in, in bringing his, his name and, and, and his... Uh, his uh, 
establishing his relationship with human beings. And it begins with Abram in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. It says, the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. And as you're reading this, you know, to, to us, as we look at this, uh, we think, okay, well, that sounds like a, a wonderful promise. And we can see, of course, you know, who Abram has become. And he ultimately became Abraham. And most people on earth have some general idea of who Abraham is. Uh, but at this time, he's just, he's just a schmo. You know, he's just a guy. He's a guy from the land of, of Ur. And he's, he's really not very well known. And he's thinking to himself, well, it's going to get even worse for me because now God's asking me to go into a foreign land. And if you wanted anybody to remember your name, if you wanted to have any sort of uh, inheritance in this life, you would stick with your peoples and your land and you would stay with them because that's where safety was found. That's where prosperity was found. And to leave that place that you had been, you know, your roots and your foundation was there was to leave you very vulnerable was to leave you impoverished. It was a great, great risk. And so I'm sure that Abram is thinking to himself, how is this going to make me great? How is this going to bring blessing into my life in any way? But that's what God says. He says, I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Well, here's another complex idea. You know, how am I going to be a blessing if, if I have nothing? But then God says, I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse and then he says, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. you know, can you imagine that? All peoples on earth. And again, you go back to this point in time and you think to yourself, okay, this is just a guy. This is just a guy living in the Middle East somewhere, probably modern day Babylon, modern day Iraq, that would be, where Babylon was located. <laughs> and... God is saying, I'm going to bless all the people on earth through you. Now again, this is written a very long time ago. A very long time ago. And we can document that. This is written thousands of years ago, okay? How on earth, even the time that when it was written, could people predict that God would bless all peoples on earth through this man Abram? This is a prophecy that has been fulfilled in the most incredible way. And yet, again, to somebody like Abram, it's like, what are you going to do? How are you going to do it? He can't even compute. He's thinking, great nation, I just want to be a great-grandfather. Like, if I could just reach great-grandfather status, I would be over the moon. You know, so the idea of great nation is beyond what he can even comprehend. And so that's the predicament that Abram is in. And, and no one can imagine how this promise is going to be fulfilled. And yet, that's exactly the way that God works. He works in unfathomable ways. He works in mysterious ways. We don't even understand how he's going to fulfill all the things that he says he's going to do. And yet, he seems to bring about solutions in ways that we cannot fathom. Abraham uh, did ultimately have a son. His name was Isaac. Isaac had two sons. Uh, one of whom was named Jacob, and he became the father of the nation that we know as Israel. In fact, God ultimately changed Jacob's name into Israel, which means that he contends with God. And so God's people, 
That's essentially their inheritance. They contend with God. And uh, that's, that's their existence, this up and down relationship with God, this uh, we're on the good side, we're on the bad side, uh, we're fulfilling our, our duties as God's people, and we are uh, not fulfilling our duties as God's people, and the back and forth. And, and ultimately, they did grow into a great nation, at least by numbers, quantity speaking. Uh, there were many, many, many of them, millions of them, in fact, living in Egypt, except I'm sure at that point in time, they felt as though, is this the promise that God had given to Abraham, that, that we would be a nation of slaves? Because that's what they had become. They were a nation of slaves in Egypt. And in fact, their existence was so miserable that they were crying out to God, asking that he would deliver them. And I'm sure that their prayers at that point in time were, was, was this what you had promised our forefather Abram? I mean, is this the great inheritance that you have given us? You know, is this the blessing that you were speaking of? Because, you know, while we can certainly see that we have an identity as a people, it's hardly a positive one, right? They suffered unimaginably in slavery in Egypt. Well, God listened to their prayers. He answered them. He sent them a deliverer named Moses. And Moses led the people out of Egypt But when he led the people out of Egypt, you could hardly say that Israel was a blessing to Egypt, right? In fact, anybody who knows the story knows that it went rather badly for the Egyptians. So that would seem as though the promise that God had of them being a blessing to other nations wasn't really being fulfilled as well. And then they go into the land of Canaan. It's another kind of dark hour for them. As you read the story, it's like, Eek, I don't know if I would describe these people a great nation, you know, or inspiring in any way, shape, or form. And, and nevertheless, eventually they reach the promised land. Well, again, they drive out all the inhabitants of Canaan, you know, hardly being a blessing to all the peoples who occupied those lands. And this promise seems to be very, very elusive. And so they have Joshua who comes and and is a great captain of the army. He delivers the people the land, and uh, they take occupation of it. And it seems as though at least some of the things that God had told Abraham were falling into place. There's this long-storied history. Ultimately, they come to a king over Israel whose name is David. And David, he leads the nation in a positive direction. Right? All of a sudden, things start happening uh, They make peace with a lot of their enemies through war, but they ultimately establish themselves as a great nation among that time. They they take territory. Uh, They gain prosperity. Uh, All of a sudden, this idea of blessing is is starting to at least make some sense, okay? We're prosperous as a nation. You know, we have borders that are well defended. We we have an identity as a people. Uh, God, through David's son, Solomon would build a a temple, a great and a glorious temple, uh, established, uh, of course, in honor of his name. And uh, that temple would house the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God was said to reside. And Solomon, he took what David had established, and he took it to the next level. All of a sudden, his wealth was of legendary status. The nation was, was growing it was of its largest, at its largest size at that point. And, and I'm sure that the people began to say, well, look what's happening. You know, the hope was realized. 
Look what God is doing. And, and now we are a nation of peace. And now we are a nation of prosperity. And now we could see how the things that are coming out of Israel are blessing uh, to peoples all around us. But near the end of, of Solomon's life, God fulfilled a promise. But it wasn't the promise that we read about in Genesis chapter 12. It was a promise of another kind. Because God had promised his people as well that if you turn your hearts away from me, if you go and you worship other gods, well, then I'm going to divide your land. And then I'm going to create uh, chaos. I'm going to bring a curse upon you. And Solomon had taken many wives. These many wives worshipped many different gods. Uh, He supported that. He went along with that. He engaged in that. And of course, uh, what happened as a result was the destruction, the division of the kingdom of Israel. All of a sudden, uh, as soon as Solomon's son took over, the nation was split into two. The northern kingdom, which was known as Israel, and the southern kingdom, which was known as Judah. And they started warring against each other, and there was all sorts of bitterness uh, between the two, and, and things just went downhill from there. The, the nation of, of Israel struggled mightily. Uh, they never seemed to get the upper hand. All the peoples around them were taking their land, were raiding them, invading them, breaking off pieces of the land that David and Solomon had established. And all of a sudden, their, their borders were at risk, and they were impoverished again, and they were falling into all sorts of idol worship. Things were not going well. Uh, the kingdom of Judah fared a little bit better, but again, there was all sorts of problems, all sorts of issues. There were enemies on all sides, and they were constantly at war. Again, there was no peace to be found in the land. And things were not going well. Eventually, there was a, a kingdom just to the north of them, the kingdom of Assyria, that amassed a great deal of power. They were a huge threat. They were about to absorb Israel into their ranks, and eventually did. Uh, Israel was completely destroyed. All their cities just raised. All their people spread out across the land. In fact, in Jesus' day, uh, the modern-day Samaritans were the result of of what happened when Assyria took all the inhabitants of of Israel to the north, intermarried them, created chaos in in their country, and all of a sudden, their identity, it just was lost. It was gone. Uh, people looked down on them. They considered them half-breeds. They called them Samaritans. And we know the history from, from Jesus of just the ill repute that those peoples had. But Judah was next in line to be absorbed by Assyria. They were awaiting that, you know, that final push, that final siege. They knew it was just a matter of time. As they saw their neighbors to the north, these people who uh, they had had some form of relationship with, Uh, go down in such a bitter defeat. And it it was at that time that God started to send messengers in the form of the prophets. And these prophets were sent to remind them of their great history, this rich promise that God had made to Abram. But it was a reminder that I'm sure at the time fell upon hollow ears. I'm sure at the time... They were a little numb to the pain that they were experiencing all around them to think to themselves, how could we possibly find hope in our situation? How could we possibly think towards any sort of resolution that is going to be good? Because all that we see is pain and hardship 
and sorrow and curses. But in the midst of that environment, God God sent voices like the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 49, verse 5, it, it gives a little bit of life to these words of these prophets. We begin to kind of understand just the environments in which they were sharing these prophecies. But Isaiah says this, And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. And he's again speaking that to a people who are experiencing anything but that. You know, it's almost this game of of opposites, right? I mean, any sort of positive message that you could bring is the exact opposite of what it is that we are actually experiencing. And in verse 6, he says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those of Israel I have kept. So in other words, at the time in which things are looking so bleak and so hopeless and so dark, God says, that dream that you had of being a great nation, it's too small. And that hope that you had of, of God restoring your nation and making you into this place that is inspiring to peoples all around you, that idea is too little. He says, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles. That's the entire world. I mean, most of us in this room, unless you have any Jewish inheritance, uh, those of us in this room, are, we're the Gentiles. That's who we are. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. I would equate this to, uh, I'll just use a modern day metaphor. It's halftime. You're on a football team. Okay, maybe it's in high school, football. You're down 56 to nothing at halftime. The coach comes into the halftime locker room, and everybody's hanging their heads. Everybody's beat up. You know, the quarterback's laid out on the floor. He's got a broken something, you know. Everybody's just beat up, 56 to nothing. The coach says, they got 300-pound linemen. You know, they've got a world-class quarterback. They've got amazing athletes and incredible coach. But we've got hustle. And we've got heart. And yeah, we've got, we've got this tenacity, you know, and we're going to go get them. And they're looking around at, at all of their teammates and the feeling in the locker room and they're thinking to themselves, is this guy just full of hot air? Yeah, this is, I mean, is he watching the same game that we're playing, right? Is he even in the same planet that we are on? Because this is not at all how are we going to predict that this thing is going to end? And nevertheless, that's the message that God delivers. And that's the situation. That's, the, that's what they were living. That was what they were experiencing. And then to make matters worse, things go from bad to worse. After messages like this from Isaiah, eventually Assyria breaks through. They conquer Jerusalem. At that particular point in time, they don't destroy the temple, but Babylon conquers Assyria, which then comes through, conquers Jerusalem, and then they destroy the temple. Like, all of a sudden, things are really in shambles. You know, now, you know, not only is Israel disseminated and, you know, hardly exists anymore, 
But now we have Jerusalem, the very identity of God's people, that this, this temple, which is so crucial to their, to their form of, of identity, has been destroyed. Right? And, and now you, you think as though, I mean, there's no hope left. I mean, uh, now I guess you could say, we come out in the third quarter. We fumbled the kickoff. They recovered it, and they scored another touchdown. Right? Now they're driving again. Right? I mean, so... It's as though things went from bad to way worse. Now there really is no hope. There's, there's no way in which this is going to resolve itself. And then God sends another prophet. In fact, one of the last prophets. He sends multiple along the way, but Malachi is another prophet. In fact, he's the last one who comes along before the birth of Jesus. And in Malachi chapter 1, verse 11, God is not relenting with this positive message of how he is going to fulfill his promises. He's going to bring to reality the hope that was very dimly existing in anyone's heart. And he says this. He says, My name will be great among the nations. And the people are thinking, nobody even knows who you are or who we are. We're not even a nation anymore. How are we going to be great among the nations if we aren't even a nation? We've been destroyed time and time and time again. And he says, no, we need to be great among the nations. From where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me. Because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. You look at a prophecy like that. They didn't even know at that point in time what encompassed the entire world. Right? They didn't even know about the land that we're standing on right now. They didn't, they didn't know about the scope of, of what it is that God was saying. How could they conceive or possibly even begin to understand the scope of what God is talking about? Yet even greater than what their minds could conceive is what God has brought about, what God has done. And yet this promise is delivered to a people that I cannot overemphasize how beat down, bruised, and hopeless they really were. They were crushed as a people. There was nothing positive, nothing that brought any light or hope to their particular situation. And they must have been thinking, this is a cruel joke. This is where they are at. Well then, to make matters even worse, a few hundred years after this, the Roman Empire, would expand. And the Roman Empire rose to prominence and power. They came to the threshold of, of what is Palestine. It was a Roman general. His name was Pompey the Great. Right? Pompey the Great. And, and that was just for irony. Right? He's, he's great. Right? This is what an example of what greatness looks like. Right? A conquering Roman general. And he comes through to Jerusalem. And they have city walls. They have a, a temple which acts as kind of a second fortification. And so he decides, decides to put the siege on the city. Uh, ultimately, they break through. They slaughter all these priests. It's this terrible scene. Uh, the general Pompey, he walks into the temple and he goes into what is considered the God chamber. And the God chamber was this place in, in every temple and amongst ancient peoples where the God was said to reside. And, and so typically, 
a nation's God was in the form of an idol. And so you would go in and uh, you would see this, this idol. This is the representation of their God. And they might even take this idol and you know, wheel it out to certain places uh, for festivals or special days or opportunities to demonstrate and, and worship, uh, to express you know, their undying loyalty to this God and, and love for this God. And, uh, and Israel had a God chamber. We know it as the Holy of Holies. Pompey walks into the temple. He splits the veil. He walks into the Holy of Holies. But there is nothing there. There's nothing in this Holy of Holies. Because the Jews had strictly forbidden God being created in the form of any graven image or idol. It was not to take on the form of an idol or a graven image because God was spirit. And as such, it was seen as blasphemous, right? To present him in any way that would diminish the greatness of who he was. And so Pompey walks into this God chamber, but there's nothing there. And it's fascinating to think of that moment and just to recognize that this God who took no form This God who had always been known as spirit. This God whom I would imagine that for his his people, for all those who had come to follow him, had the difficulty of understanding how, how can we relate? How can we develop a relationship with this God? Uh, How can we know him? You know, there was such a, a wide, vast expanse between them and God. And it's at that moment in time that God chose to bring his son into the world. To take on human flesh and to become one of us. And it's a fascinating story to consider all that transpired and all that happened. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, the Apostle Paul is writing it, and he says it this way. He says, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son to be born of a woman. When the set time had fully come. And there's a lot in that particular revelation that Paul has, because when you think of all that they had gone through, and you would imagine that when they were at their lowest point, you know, whenever that was. And they were thinking to themselves, well, now would be a really good time. And then it went lower. Well, now would be a really good time. And then it went even lower than that. And now would be a really good time. And, you know, the floor just went out. You know, I mean, it was, it was just unbelievable. And what's the set time? You know, and, and how, how do you discern when that is? You know, but Paul says when the set time had fully come. And when you look at what was happening in the world at the time that Jesus was born, you can begin to put some pieces together. You begin to recognize things like the Roman peace, the the roads in Rome, the ability that people had to travel from various cultures, the the common language uh, that had been brought about because of that, that people could communicate across people groups. When you start to recognize that the structure was in place for God to bring his son into the world and for the word to get out about his resurrection. For the word to get out about the life that he came to bring. For the word to get out about this gospel. 
This gospel of Jesus Christ who had been sent into the world to save the world. Then you start to begin to comprehend, okay, God was waiting. He was waiting for a time in which his promise could be fulfilled. And it came, again, in the midst of another hopeless situation. And again, it it didn't start, the Christmas story didn't start with a couple contemplating and thinking, how did we get pregnant? It actually started in another hopeless situation with a couple just like Abram and Sarah who were trying to figure out whether or not they ever would become pregnant. And that story begins in Luke's telling of the Christmas story. And it's a story about another couple named Zachariah and Elizabeth. And Zechariah is a priest in the temple, this temple that Pompey decided not to destroy. And worship continues. And although they are a beaten down, you know, vassal state of Rome, you know, they still have some form of identity, some glimmer of hope. And Zechariah is one of the priests. He goes into the temple, an angel comes and appears before him and says, you're going to have a baby. And he laughs at the thought because he thinks to himself, my wife is too old to conceive. You know, we've been barren for years. How is this going to resolve itself now? And the angel says, well, since you didn't believe me, you're going to be mute until that baby is born. And so he's mute. He can't speak. I'm sure he's trying to sign all these crazy things that have happened to him, uh, to his, the rest of his family. Uh, Elizabeth gets pregnant. She carries the child for, I would assume, nine months. And the baby is born. And when the baby is born, they turn, they ask Zachariah, what should his name be? And he says, his name is John. It's the first time he's spoken since the angel had appeared to him in the temple all those months ago. And John was was to be the one who would prepare the way for Jesus. And and again, it's it's this hopeless situation. And the reason I bring that story up is because it takes you know, this, this huge, you know, large scope of this nation of people that have been beaten down and, and hopelessness and hopelessness and hopelessness. And then it brings it into this point where this one couple is dealing just with their personal issue, dealing with barrenness and the pain and the hardship and the feeling as though God had forgotten us and all of that. And it's another hopeless situation. And Christmas is this time in which we recognize and I put this up on the screen because I want you just to, to hear this, that when all hope is lost, hope was born into the world. When all hope was lost, on a cosmic scale, you know, I mean, for the nation, for this young couple that was dealing with barrenness, when all hope was lost, hope was born into the world. I don't know what you've been dealing with, I don't know what situation you're facing. I don't know what challenges are in your life in this present moment. But maybe you feel as though, man, can things get any lower? Can things get any worse? Maybe you're facing financial hardship and trouble. And you're just looking at your situation. You're saying to yourself, how can God possibly redeem this? How could anything good come out of this? How could it possibly resolve itself? And you cannot think of a solution. You you can't even wrap your mind around what it would look like for God to do something good in your situation. That's how beaten down it has become. And perhaps I'm just being too dramatic. But I would think that 
out of all of us in this room, each and every one of us has some sort of a story in which that fits, that narrative fits, because that's life. Life is full of joy and goodness and sadness and hardship and tragedy. And each and every one of us has tasted it. Because we, we live in these bodies that are dying. We live in this, this world that in so many ways is fallen and dying. And we desperately need for God to, to redeem the situation. And, and Christmas is a time in which we look into the midst of the darkness and the blackness and the hardship of the tragedy of our lives and we say, there's a thrill of hope. Because hope was born into the world all those years ago. And if hope is born into the world, then it exists. It lives here in our hearts and in our minds. It lives here because Christ has come into the world. And here's the second thing that I want us to remember when it comes to Christmas. That hope came into the world in the most improbable way. So when we can't think of the solution, when we can't think of of how in the world is this going to resolve itself, we recognize that oftentimes we just aren't creative enough. We we aren't able to comprehend the mysterious ways of God. And while we question Him and and while we think, well, why did we have to go through this? Or why did it have to get worse? Or or why did He go? Or why did she leave? And and we, we think of these situations and we think, how is this ever going to be brought to resolution. We know that, 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 our, that our God works in mysterious ways. The hope comes into the world in the most improbable way. And so my question to you, and, and something I hope that resonates with you and something you could think about this week, is just simply this. How does this story relate to my own story? And again, perhaps you're in a hopeless situation. Maybe you've all but forgotten about hope. Maybe you've completely surrendered to the hopelessness of your situation because of how improbable it would be for anything good to come out of it. But it's precisely at that darkest, dimmest moment that God did something impossible and fulfilled His promise to the world. And again, You may not be able to imagine it, but God's ways are mysterious. He has set a time, and it was a couple thousand years before when that promise was first given, but he had set a time, and and God's, his timing is perfect. His timing is perfect, and I I just pray that, that as you contemplate this story, you know, from beginning to end, even as we followed this narrative, you would recognize I can be patient. I can wait on that. And if God knows what's best, I can trust Him. And if God works in mysterious ways, I'm going to surrender to His perfect will. And I'm going to recognize that I may not be able to comprehend it. I may be able, not be able to compute uh, what needs to happen or how in the world this is going to resolve itself, but I, but I know that hope is alive. And I know that hope was born into the world. And so that thrill of hope is going to to ignite me going forward. It's going to give me the energy. It's going to give me the faith. It's going to give me the ability to wake up and to experience this sense of trust and faith and hope 
and love and all the goodness that God has brought into my life because he's brought it into the world in the form of his son, Jesus. And when all hope was lost, hope was born. So I want to pray for you this morning. I want to pray into your situation. I want to pray uh, that God would give you that thrill of hope this morning, that he would spark something in your spirit that would cause you to wake up with a new mentality and a recognition that God is faithful, he is good, and that he is trustworthy. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you for the good things that you have done and the good things that you will do. And God, for each person in this room, we just pray that uh, that as our own story intersects with this story of Christmas, Lord, as, as we can see some familiarity in the journey that your people went through all those thousands of years with our own journey, the ups and the downs, the lows and the highs, God, that feeling in, in which we almost had it only to have it slip away. And God, that experience of, of crushing defeat as we recognize how could it get any worse than this? And it gets worse. And God, I, I just pray that you would give us the ability to hear this halftime speech from you. And God, not grow bitter and not give way to defeat and to not give up. But God, continue to hope and continue to believe against all odds that you are the God of the impossible. And that you work in the most improbable ways to bring about resolutions that we can't even think or reasonably understand. But God, you are a God of all creativity. You are a God who redeems things in ways that just seem impossible. And so God, we're we're praying for that thrill of hope. God, we're praying for it to come alive in our hearts and our minds. God, would you awaken our spirits this morning? We thank you for this time today. We thank you for the story of Christmas. We thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.